There's one thing that is difficult. It's hard. Sometimes it's even agonizing. So much so that we will put it off. We don't want to face the facts, the reality, the truth. It's hard for individuals. It's hard for families. It's hard for companies. And it's hard for churches. You say, what is that? Evaluation. Evaluation. You know, when you get evaluated at work, if you know that you've done a good job, there is really not that much concern. You know, for the most part, there might be one or two things, but... But most of the time, if we're not careful, we will avoid evaluation. And the reason that we avoid evaluation, we don't mind being evaluated on our good points. But it's a hard thing, it's a difficult thing, it's, it's an uncomfortable thing, as I said, for families, individuals, companies, and churches to evaluate their situation to see where they're failing. That's a hard thing to do. We don't mind seeing where we've succeeded. But to look at your life, to be able to sit back and take a moment and say, okay, where am I failing? I can see where I'm succeeding in my life, and I'm thankful for that, but where am I failing in my life? Or where am I, if this is maybe a little bit more palatable for you, instead of the word failing, missing the mark, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Where am I missing the mark? We don't, we don't like that term failing, do we? It's just like, it's, it's somewhat depressing and putting down. But really, if you miss the mark, you failed, right? And, and, but that's a hard thing to do. But you know, those who are willing to take a hard look and admit their failures... Admit where they've missed the mark. Admit where they're coming up a little bit short... Those who are willing to take a hard look and admit that are the ones who will be able to eventually have a better life. They're going to succeed in a greater way. You can see that in individuals' lives. You can see it in families' lives. You can see it in corporate life. But you also can see it in church life. See, I believe that if we were to evaluate the church as a whole, I'm talking about across our nation and maybe even around the world but if we were to evaluate the church as a whole I believe that one of its greatest weaknesses is found in a lack of prayer one of the greatest weaknesses of the church is a lack of prayer Let me just say this. The reason being is, though we wouldn't say this, we think being on bended knee is not as productive as being busy for God. I'm just, I'm not doing anything for God. Listen. God doesn't need you to do anything for him. He just needs you to be available so he can do something through you. 
And if he's working through you, you will do something for him. And so many times we think because we're on bended knee, we're wasting time. Oh, we wouldn't say it that way, but you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. You'll say, well, man, I've got so much to do. Let me say a quick prayer. Let me make sure that I am so busy today, um, uh, and, and I got all this, but make sure I pray for my family, my church, my pastor, my Sunday school teacher, my life point teacher, uh, maybe a missionary or two. God, help me to do a good job at work today. Man, I got to get going. Martin Luther, the reformer, said, he said, I'm so busy today that I must spend three hours in prayer. That's a total opposite way of thinking, isn't it? I've got so much to do today, I must spend three hours in prayer. It's one of our greatest weaknesses as individuals and as churches. And I think it's easy for us to evaluate the church as a whole and say, yes, the church as a whole, man, it is, it is, it's really weak in prayer. Well, we have something around here in January which we call Vision Night. Vision Night is the church's report card. That's basically what it is. We show you exactly what's happened over the past year how many people were saved? How many people were baptized? How, what, was, what was given? All, all throughout, we've got all these different stats. We give that to you. Then we present to you what we'd like to see happen uh, the, the coming year. And we usually have a theme. And you see our theme is, is uh, posted around here and up on the walls and, and uh, those type of things. And it's really our report card for the year. It's an evaluation. And, and as I, as pastor, take a, a look and I step back and say, okay, let me evaluate open Bible. Well, some of the good points of open Bible. Man, I'm uh, thinking about open Bible. Man, I believe that this church has grown in love over the, over the, the past years that I've been here as pastor. And I'm, I've seen, I know that uh, personally, I've grown in love as pastor for uh, you folks. And I've seen that and I've sensed that and I see the unity uh, in, in our church. And uh, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I've seen how uh, God has removed some folks out and he's brought some folks in. And, and uh, the, the thing is, sometimes, as pastor, you don't want to see anybody leave. But I've seen how God's used that to develop even a spirit of unity. A greater spirit of unity. Uh, not an inclusiveness. No, 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 no. Not a click, but a spirit of unity. And there's a difference. And I've seen that, and I'm thankful for that. I've seen how we've been uh, um, more evangelistic in, uh, with our outreach over these past uh, eight years. I've seen how uh, we've increased in our missions over this past eight years. Uh, I've seen where uh, we've gotten more people into discipleship, uh, and they're growing in their faith over these past eight years. I mean, I've seen, there's many, many good things that Open Bible is doing, and, and uh, I'm excited about it as I sit back and I evaluate and say, God, what, what a great God you are. Look at all that you're doing. I'm, I'm so thankful for what you're doing here. But Lord, where, where, where do we need to improve? Where are we, where are we failing, Lord? I believe if I were to evaluate as pastor 
our church and us as a body of believers that as pastor, now listen, that corporate prayer would be an area where we need to drastically grow. The corporate prayer is an area where our church needs to drastically grow. Now, look, I'm not trying to beat you up this morning or, or uh, throw you under the bus or, or uh, throw a guilt trip on you. Not at all. What I'm wanting us to see, uh, all of us to see this morning, is that we need more praying and less programming. We need more praying. Let me tell you something. If we pray more, the programs are going to go right. If we pray more, we're going to see more people saved. If we pray more, God's going to move. Let me put it to you this way. You say, well, what do you base your evaluation on? Let me, let me put it to you this way. Wouldn't you all agree, and I'm not looking for an audible answer, but, but I think I believe that this would be true. Wouldn't you agree that actions speak louder than words? I mean, anybody can say anything. But if I were to tell you I can run a four a 4140. Some of you who are in track, you'd be like, yeah, I want to see that. Oh, well, yeah, that's, I'm running it in a, in a Viper, you know, or I'm going to get in the car and do that because I'm not going to, I can't physically run that, you know. I could say it all I want. It, you know, Usain Bolt, man, pff, he's nothing. Oh, wait a second. Let's have you line up, right? Let, let, let's, let's have you do it. So if actions speak louder than words and you agree with me on that, what would make me say as pastor that our church needs to drastically grow in corporate prayer? What would make you say that? Well, I would think that the action of being present for corporate prayer or the lack thereof is a reason that I would make such a statement. And again, I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody. I'm just trying to get us to think. I understand. Some people have to work on Wednesday evenings. I understand that. I understand that. So this isn't a guilt trip. This is to get us to think. But then there are some that we just lay out, don't we? Let's just be honest. I, I'm, I, I, want to, I want to come to you this morning as as a dad sitting down with a family and saying, now, now let's sit down and let's evaluate this. Some of us just lay out. Oh, well. All they're doing is having a little Bible study and prayer. See, I believe that we can grow. Now listen, you say, well, Pastor, how can we grow in corporate prayer? I believe that if we would all take seriously, listen, that prayer is the privilege and responsibility of every believer that we would grow in corporate prayer. If we took the attitude and we believe that it is the privilege and responsibility of me as an individual, then we would grow in corporate prayer James gives to us four conditions in which we should be praying. I can't help but think that maybe it got back to James. And I've heard this said uh, to me sometimes for, with people. They say, well, pastor, I just don't know what to pray. 
And, and I'm not trying to make fun of that or, or disparage anybody with that. I can almost hear uh, somebody write to James, or he probably got a letter or something like that. Well, James, I know we're supposed to pray, but I just don't know what to pray for. I just don't know how to pray. And James gives us four conditions this morning in which we should be praying. And let me give those, I'm going to give you two this morning by God's grace. What should I say in prayer? If it's my privilege and my responsibility, then how should I be praying to God? Or what are these conditions? Let me give you the first one. Number one, you are to pray for the afflicted. You are to pray for the afflicted. Look in verse 13, if you will, please. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. We could entitle this verse, Prayer and Praise, or Prayer and Care. We have here, if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write this down, the injunction to pray. The injunction to pray. What's an injunction? It's, it's a command. It's a, it's a very strong request. So what am I to pray for, pastor? How am I to pray? I'm to pray for the afflicted. And then James gives us the injunction to pray. You say, well, how do you know that this passage is about prayer? Well... How about from verses 13 through verse 20? It's mentioned seven times in these verses. James uh, answers for those who are afflicted in a short but powerful statement. He says, if you're afflicted, let him pray. What James is saying here when it's talking about affliction, he's, he's talking about when you find yourself in a difficult circumstance, pray. When you find yourself in troubling circumstance, pray. When you find yourself underneath a great burden, Pray. When there seems to be all, any and all type of affliction upon you, he's saying, pray. We're not to grumble. We're not to complain. We're, we're not to blame God. We're to pray. I want you to turn to Psalm 57, if you would, please. He said, so the first thing that you're to pray for is those who are afflicted. How many of you in here know somebody that's afflicted, is going through a hard time? Well, guess what? If you do... You can pray. You probably know multiple people that are going through difficult times, that are having a great affliction. See, the reason for this prayer and this affliction, maybe you're going through an affliction. What are you to do? You are to pray. And the reason that we are to pray is because we want to ask God for wisdom to know his will, listen now, to know his will in order to bring glory to his name in the midst of the affliction. Listen, affliction is always designed for, I'm going to give you two things, but there's, within that you can break it down, but affliction is designed to do two things. Affliction, affliction is always designed to conform you to the image of Christ. You can count on that. The reason that we have afflictions, the reason that we have trials, the reason that we have difficulties is to conform us to the person of Christ. The second thing that you can count on, the reason that you have affliction, difficulty, troubling circumstances, is so that God will get glory. And he says here that we are to pray for those who are afflicted. See, 
Listen, you say, how can I bring glory to God in my affliction? That's a really good question. How can I bring glory to God in my affliction? You bring glory to God and to his name when you and I, when we cast our pain, our trouble, our difficult circumstances upon the Lord. We bring glory to him. Instead of taking, instead of taking it on ourselves, we cast it upon the Lord. And as we cast it upon the Lord, even though we're going through the difficult time, the, the, and, and James gives us this injunction to pray, we're going to continue to pray. And as we do, instead of keep taking it back, we're going to keep giving it to the Lord. Every time you take it back, you're going to give it to the Lord. Every time you take it, you're going to give it to the Lord. Why? Because the purpose is for me to have God glorified through the affliction. As I pray. How many times have you given something over to the Lord and you've taken it back? Don't look at me like you've never done it. Because I do it all the time. And so do you. And how many times we got to say, Lord, wait a second. You're in control. You are God. I am not God. You've got this under uh, your control. I don't have to worry about it. I just need to be subject unto you so that that way you can get glory through it. If God's not getting glory through affliction and you are not being transformed into the image of Christ, then it's wasted. It's wasted. A matter of fact, it can be used as a, as a tool by Satan to keep people from coming to Christ. Listen, it doesn't mean that you don't shed tears. It doesn't mean that you're not heartbroken. It doesn't mean that you may not be confused. It doesn't mean that you may feel like you are walking in darkness and there is no light around. It does not mean that. But the simple fact of the matter is, though tears may be streaming down your face, you are raising your hands in prayer to God and praising Him, knowing that He will bring you through. And if He doesn't, He's going to give you the grace to go through the injunction to pray. Psalm 51, 7, uh, Psalm 57, 1, the Bible says, be merciful unto me, O God. Listen, when you're going through your affliction, that ought to be one of the first things on your lips. Be merciful unto God, or God, hear my prayer and answer me speedily. Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yes. Now let me stop right there. Have you ever sometimes doubted God? When the affliction's been so great, you've doubted God? Sometimes you just got to keep telling yourself, I am trusting in God. It doesn't matter what I feel. It doesn't matter what those thoughts are coming to my mind. I am trusting God. It doesn't feel like I'm trusting. It doesn't matter if I think that I'm trusting. I am trusting God. I'm going to continue to pray. I'm going to continue to ask. And I know that he will help me. There's the injunction to pray. He says, yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge. Not in the shadow of Facebook. Or Instagram. Or email. No. In the shadow of thy wings will I 
take my refuge. If you ever studied anything about certain type of birds, what they will do is they will protect their young by putting the wings over them. And even if there is a fire that is getting ready to take the life of the, the mother bird or the hen or whatever type of bird that it would be, they will put their wings over it and they will sacrifice their life for the life of their child. And let me tell you something. Jesus Christ has sacrificed his life for you and me so that, that way we are eternally protected. The injunction to pray. I can trust in him. Now look at what he says there. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings I will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. See, when we pray in faith, guess what? When we pray in faith, and listen, sometimes I'm, just, I'm trying to be uh, like a dad to you this morning and, and just open up my heart to you. Sometimes it's hard to pray in faith. Sometimes there's the doubt that creeps in. And you know what you got to put? You say, well, then what do you do then? You look up to the Lord and you say, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. You say, well, I don't feel like I've got that much faith. I feel like my faith is almost waning. Listen, the Bible says if you have a faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Guess what? I've never seen anybody move a mountain. So you know what? God's saying if you just have a flicker of faith right there, just that flicker of faith, hold on to that. See, when we pray in faith, we receive help, we receive strength, we receive comfort, but the key is that we must pray. Sometimes we think that God doesn't want to hear us pray. Let me ask you a question, just simply here. Do you believe that God wrote this book through human authors? Well, I do. I believe it's the preserved, inspired Word of God. I believe it's God's love letter to us. I believe he put down everything that we need to know according to the word of God. It says everything that we need to know for life and godliness. That's what the Bible says. So he's given us everything that we need to know for life and godliness. So then if that's the case, and if sometimes we believe that God doesn't want to hear me pray, then if he didn't want to hear us pray, why would, why would he have James underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit put in here, is any among you afflicted, let him pray. Let me tell you something. God wants to hear you pray. But not only are we uh, instructed to pray uh, with the injunction to pray, but we uh, let her be. We are to pray incessantly. The incessant need to prayer. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You are to pray. You say, Pastor, I don't know who to pray for. I don't know how to pray. You are to pray for the afflicted. The Bible commands everybody to pray, the injunction to prayer, and then there's the incessant need to pray. That is praying without ceasing. Take a look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. The Bible says what? Look at it there. Pray without ceasing. Hey, could you look up here and say that with me? 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Could we say that together? Pray without ceasing. I just heard somebody recently say, well, that doesn't really mean that we're supposed to pray without ceasing. It doesn't really mean that we're supposed to pray all the time. Yeah, no, it does. It means that we are to pray without ceasing. 
You say, well, how do you pray without ceasing when you're at work? You might be uh, going, and sometimes your mind, you're, you're thinking about your job and doing whatever. And then something comes, uh, maybe a little difficulty along the way. You say, Lord, uh, this is just coming to my way here, and I need you to help me with it. Give me wisdom on what I should do. And the mom might be vacuuming the house or uh, iron some clothes. Lord, help me to do this to your honor and glory, and help me to be the mother that I need to be to these children, and the wife that I need to be to, the, to, to, to my husband. And, and the husband might be driving home thinking about his lovely family. He might be saying, Lord, uh, take all the pressures of work away from me, please. I'd ask you for that and keep me safe on my ride home and help me to be the husband that I need to be and the godly leader that I need to be for my family. Help me to be the daddy that my uh, family needs and that I would be a witness and, and, and that I would be the right type of man of God for them. No, it means to pray without ceasing. That's what it means. Just because we can't see how it can be done doesn't mean that that's not what the scripture is stating. You see a quote in there, it says, prayer may not remove the affliction, but it certainly will transform it. Man, when I saw that quote, I was like, man, I grabbed a hold of that thing and I'm like, yes, that's what I need right there. It may not remove the affliction, folks. That's okay, because you've got a God that will walk through the affliction with you. Listen, I know it's uncomfortable sometimes going through affliction, but listen, it is better to have God with you in the affliction than to be free from the affliction and not have God with you. He says, pray without ceasing. But prayer can remove the difficulty or affliction this morning if that's what God wills. If God chooses not to remove the affliction, you say, then why should we pray? And why are we instructed to pray without ceasing? Because through prayer, listen, friends, through prayer, God blesses us with grace to endure the troubles and uses them to accomplish his perfect will. See, we need to pray incessantly because we need that steady stream of grace and mercy flowing into our lives. James chapter 4 and verse 6, the Bible says, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. As pastor, I'm doing an evaluation on our church. Man, there's many good things here. Just wonderful people. I am proud in the right type of sense to be called the pastor of Open Bible Baptist Church. I am honored to be called the pastor of Open Bible Baptist Church. And I thank the Lord for it. But as I evaluate, I've got to be honest. As we're having this family meeting this morning, as we're just sitting around, if you will, the coffee table, I, I think that we just need to be honest with ourselves and we need to sit down and, and, and we need to take a look and say, what do you think that Open Bible would be like if we corporately prayed for the afflicted? Do you think that God would be pleased to hear hundreds of voices on a Wednesday evening being lifted up to him in prayer and praise? Uh, do you think, family, do, do you think that, that we could see more people saved if we decided that we're going to make corporate prayer the hallmark of Open Bible Baptist Church? Would we see more missionaries sent out? Would we see more people discipled 
Will we see more life point classes started where people would be in small groups learning the word? Will we see more Bibles translated into the native tongue of those who have no Bibles? I can't say for sure that all those things would happen, but I know one thing. We've got a better chance of seeing all those things happen if we're on our knees in prayer than if we're not. See, it's our privilege and responsibility to pray for the afflicted. You say, Pastor, okay, I'll pray for the afflicted, but... What what do I say after that? Well, take a look at what he says in verses 14 through 16. James chapter 5, Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he had committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Secondly, not only are you to pray for the afflicted, but you're to pray for the sick. What do we see here? We see there's the solution. There's the solution for the sick. Letter A. The solution for the sick. I want you to see what the solution is not, and then I want you to see what the solution is this morning. One of the mistakes that have been made when reading this portion of Scripture is to put the emphasis on the anointing of oil of the sick person. This is many times where faith healing comes in and anointing people with oil has taken hold and really led many sincere believers astray. I want you to take a a notice of what the Scripture does not say. If you notice in verse 14... Look at what it says. Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. First, this person was a part of a local assembly. Second, we find that the sick called for the elders. The sick didn't go to the elders. What else I find is that there wasn't a faith healer called. It just said the elders. It says nothing about any, uh, anyone with any type of, quote-unquote, spiritual gift of healing. It says, let him call the elders of the church. It wasn't some itinerant evangelist or some TV evangelist, but it was the elders of a local body that it seems like this person was a part of. And then I also want you to understand that the word for anointing, it is a medical term. And some, as I've studied this out and looked at this, some believe that it may have been the elders that literally rubbed oil on believers who had suffered physical injuries to their bodies from the persecution. You could cross-reference that and take a look at Luke chapter 10 and verse 34. We won't for lack of time. We understand that medical science was very primitive at that time, and it was in a primitive state, and there were few trustworthy doctors. And it would have been a gracious and kind thing, uh, act on the part of the elders to rub oil on the wounds of those who had been beaten or into sore muscles of those who had been made to work long hours under harsh treatment. Now I want you to remember with me what Jesus stated. Remember what Jesus stated concerning the parable of the Good Samaritan. What did they do? that he took wine and oil and poured it into his wounds. Why? Because the wine, when it was fermented, helped kill any 
any type of um, infection, and the oil was used to help soothe. So the, the oil there is a medical type of term that is being used. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 13, it says this, And they cast out many devils, and anointed, them, anointed with oil many that were sick, and healed them. The point is that James and others are showing that oils were used for a medical purpose. You know, that you say, well, bring this up from the first century to the 21st century. Okay? For us, that would mean that we would use the medical means that God has provided to us in our generation. There was no special power in the oil. None whatsoever. I brought, this is what I use when people have asked me to anoint them with oil. And I brought this. Matter of fact, this is the same one that my father used. He passed it down to me. And we carried in this little bottle here. And what we'll do is we will take some of the oil with some of the uh, men of the church, some of the leaders of the church, and we'll place a little bit of oil in our hands. And then what we'll do is we'll take and we'll put that on the head of the person and we'll pray over them. Now I want you to notice this is Botticelli 100 Italian extra virgin olive oil. There's nothing special about this except for that it's Italian. And we know, we know Italians are very special people. Amen. Amen. But let me tell you something. This oil has no healing power. None whatsoever. We got this at ShopRite or Walmart or wherever we got it from. It has no healing power. Let me, let me explain it to you this way. Just like that baptismal pool back there, it doesn't wash away sin. It just represents what's happened in our life. This oil, when we place it upon the head of somebody and we're praying, we're saying, God, we understand that you are in charge. You are the healer of this person. It's a representation of what is taking place. See, there was no special power in the oil. If you study the history, I'm not going to go into it for lack of time. You'll see how this came about, about in the third century, and about how it went from just anointing people with oil. Then there had to be a special bishop, and it had to be consecrated and blessed, and all this type of stuff. And if you study your history and you understand, you understand that what's going on in some churches today is not biblical. See, the anointing is done. If you notice, take a look at what it says. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith, isn't that interesting? It's not the faith of the sick person. You ever hear that from the so-called healers out there? The reason that you're not healed is because you didn't have enough faith. Wait a second. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. you got to understand, who's talking about the prayer of faith? It's talking about the elders who are praying. It's not talking about the person who was praying. That is modifying the elders that were praying, not the person who is sick. And the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Here you go. This is why that I know that, that, that a lot of this stuff that's going on in churches today and on TV is a bunch of nonsense. Why? Because it gives us two things here. It mentions in the name of the Lord. Why, why do we have to pray in the name of the Lord? Because listen, here you go, friends. This is it right here. Because it's God who only can, uh, can heal, and it's God who can only forgive sins. That's it. 
There's no man around, around that can heal. It's God who heals. Let me tell you, every time you take an aspirin and you get feeling better because you take, took an aspirin, it wasn't the aspirin that made you better. It was God that used the aspirin to make you better. Every time you go to a surgeon and he may set your bone, maybe you broke a bone and that bone heals up right, let me tell you something. It wasn't that surgeon who made you better. It wasn't that, that, that he set it right. No, he might have set it right, but God used that surgeon to be able to help set it right. And then he used, he said, you know what, I'm going to heal this bone so it works properly. In the name of the Lord. See, God's working through the prayer of saints and medical means that's a solution for the sick. Well, what's the outcome? Letter B. What's the outcome? And I'll close with this. The outcome for the sick. It says that there is the forgiveness of sins. The lesson here is, you might want to write this down, sometimes sickness comes because of a result of sin, but not all the time. So how do you know that? 1 Corinthians 11.30? Sometimes sickness comes because of a result of sin, but not all the time. But we also see here the outcome for this, the sins need to be confessed. Just that it's to be the practice of praying for one another, it is to be the practice in, in churches, in local bodies, to confess sins one to another. What is that? You say, you mean I need to go around confessing all my sins to everybody else here? No. But if you've done wrong to somebody, you need to go back and make it right. That's what he's saying. You need to go confess that to them. Listen, this is the way that I believe that Scripture teaches in the way that it's supposed to be done. That a private sin between two individuals need to be kept private. And a public sin that has been demonstrated throughout the church needs to be made public. And that's when the church discipline and things like that come in. You say, Pastor, you believe in church discipline? Oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do. You say, well, have you ever had to exercise church discipline? No, that's on you. You determine that, not me. You say, what do you mean we determine that? If you come with a repentant spirit, there is no church discipline. There's just restoration. If you come with a rebellious spirit, then there's church discipline. So it's on the person who's committed the sin. It's not on the pastor to be able to say, I'm putting you under any church discipline. No, it all has to do with your attitude. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to pray for the sick. And the solution is that they would, take a look at what Scripture says, that they would be healed. And not only that, it says the Lord would raise him up. The Lord would raise him up. This refers to the act of God in raising one up from the sickbed or raising one up from the grave. See, listen. You said, we prayed for that person and God didn't heal them. They died. Oh, no, he healed them. You say, well, wait a second, he died. No, no, no. He might have died physically, but he's more alive today than he ever was. Amen. Oh, we prayed, we anointed oil and, and all this kind of thing, and we asked God, and we had prayer of faith, and we believed that God was going to raise him up from that sickbed. God said, no, I'm going to take him to the deathbed, and then I'm going to raise him up. See, listen, what this does is this puts, once again, God in control and not us. See, I, I can come and I can pray over you and, and, and if there's a need like that, 
and it doesn't happen often, but it's happened. If there's a need like that, I would do it. But I would also pray in that prayer, God, we want your will to be done. Say, well, Pastor, how am I to pray? You're to pray for the afflicted, and you're to pray for the sick. But you know, there's a lot of sick people. Oh, I know what it's talking about here. I understand that. But there's a lot of sick people. You say, well, what are you talking about? Where are all those sick people? Some might be in here today, but I know that there's hundreds of thousands of them outside our doors. They're spiritually sick. Their soul is sick. They've got the sin of leprosy has infected their body. And they're going into a Christless eternity. Oh, we need to pray for the afflicted in our church, and we need to pray for the sick in our church. But what about the sick out there? How many of you this morning would be able to say, I'm so thankful that somebody shared with me the remedy of God's grace. They gave me a prescription, they opened up the Bible, and they turned me to a certain portion of Scripture in the Bible, and they showed me where God himself, through a human penman inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote out the prescription that I could be healed. The Bible says what? Through his stripes, we are healed. So this morning, it's time to pray. It's time to pray. I want you to say, well, pastor, what do you want us to do? I want you to, invite, I, I want you to evaluate. This is going to be the same invitation tonight. I'm going to tell you right now, unless the Lord leads otherwise. I want you to evaluate your personal prayer life and I want you to evaluate your corporate prayer life. One of the most important things that we can do is to be able to come together on bended knee, maybe with hands held all across this auditorium and just start begging God to do something. And just pleading with God to be able to heal be able to help the afflicted, be able to help us be a gospel witness. I can guarantee you that, listen, folks, we may not see it in our lifetime. We may not see it in our lifetime. You say, well, pastor, what if we pray and pray and pray and pray and we don't see anything happen? Just read Hebrews 11. There were plenty of people that never saw the promise, but they continued to do what was right. And because of that, we're blessed today. It may not be us that we would see God do something here, and that's okay. God is in control, and it's his timing. But you know what? Maybe our kids, grandkids, or great-grandkids would experience something here that we would all long for. How's your prayer life, young person? I don't have time. Yeah, you do. 
You got plenty of time. Get off Instagram, Snapchat, stop watching YouTube. Grandmoms, I, I don't have time. Well, stop looking at all your, kid, your grandkids on Facebook. You got time. I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. I'm not saying that any of those things are wrong. But you know what? We do have time to pray. We do. How's your prayer life?